Welcome to the Senses of Cinema podcast for April 2018. I'm one of the editors at the journal, Mark Freeman, and I'm joined today by my co-host, writer, academic and programmer, Eloise Ross. Hi, Mark. And in our rotating third chair this month, we've got the return of writer and critic Joanna DiMattia. Jo, welcome back. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me back. We're very happy to have you. Today's show, we're going to be discussing Wes Anderson's stop-motion animated movie Isle of Dogs, in which a fictional Japanese city named Megasaki exiles all dogs to the appropriately named Trash Island until a young boy named Atari goes in search of his trusted companion Spots. We'll then discuss the Alice in Wonderland exhibit currently on display at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, which operates in conjunction with our latest edition of Senses of Cinema, which features a lengthy dossier on the cinematic representation of Lewis Carroll's inquisitive heroine. We'll then turn our attention to the career of Sally Potter, whose latest film, The Party, features an incredible lineup of talent and one of the shortest running times for a theatrical release. We'll end, as always, on our recommendations for the month of April, and for patrons of Senses of Cinema, in our bonus today, we'll talk to Jo about her article on Senses about the 1933 filmed version of Alice in Wonderland and the enduring appeal of Lewis Carroll's story. All right, so let's get to it. Isle of Dogs is Wes Anderson's second feature-length stop-motion animation, following on from 2009's Fantastic Mr Fox. In Isle of Dogs, a young boy named Atari, voiced by Koyu Rankin, searches for his dog spots, after the cruel mayor Kobayashi, voiced by Kenichi Nomura, removes all dogs from Megasaki to the aptly named Trash Island. Atari is aided by a pack of dogs, primarily Chief, voiced by Brian Cranston, and Rex, voiced by Edward Norton. His quest to find spots is supported by American exchange student Tracy Walker, voiced by Greta Gerwig, back in Megasaki. Nothing, Eloise, nothing can be more moving than the story of a boy's quest to be reunited with his dog. So how moved were you by Isle of Dogs? It's a really interesting question that you're posing to me, Mark, in (laughs) relation to that movie, because I was not moved at all. I feel, I mean, obviously the dogs are kind of cute, especially at the end. The puppies are very cute. Um, But I feel like there was just no emotional drive in this and no payoff. Uh, narratively, obviously, there was because this young boy is looking for his dog, and like there's a you know he gets injured a few times and just keeps on going. Um, but I think it moves too quickly and is interrupted by moments of you know so-called comedy, and uh, occasionally takes kind of removes us from the emotional plight and goes out to like a kind of narrative framework um, for the film for the storytelling. Um, and it just didn't really work for me. I mean, you know, no one dies at the end. And I feel like that I'm... <laughs> Are you saying you wanted more death? I did. You I'm like, there's so dogs. much There's so much trauma and violence in this film. And there's moments where you think maybe a few of the characters have died and then they haven't. And it's just like, oh, everything's perfect. And I just thought that, you know, if you wanted to move people, then you need to have some... There need to be some victims. There was no payoff here, and I really think that with it's it's not fair to demand emotional investment from an audience if you don't actually have a kind of realistic um, narrative closure and an ending. I think especially with animation, you need to be able to g- generate some emotional connection with what's going on, and I just didn't feel it here. So you, you were unmoved <laughs> by the dogs. I was unmoved by the dogs. Heartless. Joe, how are you? <laughs> I was moved. Um, I'm pro- maybe I'm in the minority. I do find um, Wes Anderson's films, the ones that I really like, of which there's maybe three, um, quite moving. I find them heartfelt and emotionally sincere. And I think that, I, I you know, I kind of respond quite a bit to his worldview of, you know, evil adults and these kind of fearless children who have to come to the rescue to to do things, either either to save themselves or to save others. So, yeah, I mean, I didn't cry. Um, you know, that seems to be a test nowadays of how engaged one is with anything. Um, but, I, you know, I was swept away in it and, you know, I agree. I thought one particular dog had, you know, bought it at one point. But, but and I think I probably smiled when I saw that he wasn't dead. But, um, yeah, I was. <laughs> I'm sorry to, you know, bring this perspective onto the whole conversation, but that just felt like a, yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> I understand that. But, yeah, it, that didn't sort of um, stop me from finding myself um, wrapped up in the story. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm a real 
dog person. This film should be hitting me right in the feels. Um, you know, love the dogs, all about the dogs, didn't care about the dogs. <laughs> and if you've got a film that is about a boy's quest to be reunited with his dog, I feel more emotion saying that sentence <laughs> than I felt when I was watching that film. I'm like, I don't care if he finds his dog because mm. the dogs aren't dogs. This is the thing that started to make me crazy is that the dogs are Wes Anderson characters which is a problem in and of itself, but they're not dogs. You know, they scratch a bit and maybe they might pick a tick off somebody's nose, but they're they're not doggy. It was like they were a joke. There was a a bit that kind of quite annoyed me off, you know, really fell flat as this humorous representation of what Wes Anderson was doing when I think it was Chief or maybe Rex, you know, those the two kind of main drivers of the, the cruise, says stop licking your wounds to one of the dogs and then there's a cut to one of the dogs like literally licking his wounds and like that was meant to be something hilarious and it just felt like it was this really shallow joke of Wes Anderson saying I just made this movie not because I really care about dogs a lot but just so that I could maybe make a few jokes. And it's worth recognising like that the title of the film is of course I love dogs Mm. like I love Mm. dogs Um, and yet I don't get any kind of any real puppy love. I mean, frankly, the only dog I kind of loved, and I think it's is it voiced by Tilda Swinton, which is the little pug, the yes. Oracle dog, yeah, yeah. And the TV watcher, yeah, and and that dog, awesome, felt like it was a dog, behaved like a dog, had some good comedic gags around of it, around it, and the rest left me completely cold. How do you put me in a dog movie and not move me? one slight bit. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, is it because, and it's not because it's an animation, because obviously animation can move above and beyond what it is, which is, you know, uh, drawings essentially, and be something like incredibly moving. Is it because, I mean, you know, the general consensus from people I've spoken to is that if we're comparing his stop motion films, Fantastic Mr. Fox is much better. And I think it is in terms of narrative, in terms Mm. of like rhythm and speed, um, and also in terms of emotional connection. But they're in that film, they are Wes Anderson characters, but they're also Roald Dahl characters. And so, you know, you have some connection. Whereas here they're all voiced by, you know, long time Wes Anderson collaborators and maybe it just seems like it's all a bit too familiar yeah um and that we're all too aware of what Wes Anderson is doing with this film to become connected in some way or he's too aware of what he's doing to actually make an impact with the audience yeah I mean picking up on what Joe said earlier I'm kind of I mean I I am the person that I can't stand Wes Anderson films I find him insufferable um, so bad that I just stopped bothering. I just, like, threw up my hands and said, like, I give up and I'm not going to bother anymore. But I did go back and, and look at Fantastic Mr. Fox and I do like that one quite a bit. So it was kind of, I was thinking, well, maybe Isle of Dogs, you know, might be sort of more, more my thing. I mean, the the way that I almost feel about it is I didn't hate it and I didn't want to throw something at the screen. I wasn't, like, in twee, smug, obnoxious overload that I find all of his cinema to be. It wasn't that. And so that, for me, was kind of my takeaway. Like, hey, I didn't hate it. <laughs> and And if that's the bar of my pleasure, like, I think he's still missing it. But it's certainly better than some of those other films that I've seen. So is that a win? <laughs> like, I, I wasn't filled with rage. It's a half win. Yeah. I know. In terms of the animation, it was... I mean, it looked nice. Yes, it did. Lots of it looked yeah. very good. And some of the shots were kind of callbacks from Fantastic Mr. Fox. Yeah. I think particularly of that dog voiced by Scarlett Johansson when you first see her on top of a garbage heap. Yeah. And it's just like mm. this brilliant picture of a dog standing on a, you know, on a mountain. It's like that shot of the majestic wolf yeah. creature in Fantastic yeah. Mr. Fox. And, you know, I mean, those kind of moments were nice. Sure. There was this weird moment where, because these dogs are, you know, inanimate objects, essentially, and they're often framed, you know, if they're conversing in a shot-reverse shot yep. um, kind of thing. But there was one shot, I think, only one where they were in a two-shot having a conversation and because these dogs, their eyes don't move, they can't look at each other. So it just seemed as though they were both really 
disinterested. I don't know. That really distracted me, that particular framing. It just didn't work. Um, And I think the rest of it, you know, did work and kind of fit in with his style. Yeah. But that in particular, I don't know, there was something very strange about that particular moment. And look, I mean, we probably need to address some of the things where, I, I mean, I don't want to kind of overreact to any of these things, but, you know, you mentioned, I think her name's Nutmeg, the Scarlett Johansson mm. dog, who is living on Trash Island but looks beautiful. <laughs> and there's no kind of, one of the dogs even says, like, how does she look so amazing? <laughs> like, I don't know. She's there, and this is one of my huge problems with Wes Anderson, and and is a problem with this film not as bad as some of the others that I think he's only interested in how things look and he doesn't care what anything means. I think he likes things to be pretty. So that he goes out of his way to, oh, look, let's put everybody in a frame and we're all going to be in pastel colours and, like, isn't that amazing? And it can look really pretty, but it doesn't mean anything. And so Nutmeg appears on the hill and it's like, she looks incredible. Why? It doesn't matter. She's like the desire object, so let's make her pretty. And then there's this whole, what is this about dog makeovers where they end up getting washed and suddenly, (laughs) oh, now Spots is like really hot. So maybe he can get the hot dog. And like, what is this about? So a lot of this. It wasn't hot so much as clean. Well, (laughs) yeah. But I mean, then he can kind of like, now that I'm kind of look really, you know, now you can see my Yeah, now I'm worthy of being a leading man. Yeah, exactly. It's like, now that I'm clean, I'm cuddly. You know. And so none of it has meaning. It's just like, I like the way things look, and that's as far as that thinking goes. Mm. I mean, I'm interested in maybe us talking a little bit about this. I mean, I I mentioned this before we, you know, we started recording that I went to see this movie um, sort of with all of the conversation about um, issues of cultural appropriation and whether this is an homage or, you know, an expression whose great love for Japan or really he just picks and chooses from cultural cultures as, you know, as you're saying, Mark, to kind of build his aesthetic. Um, And I guess, I watched the film with those kind of voices in my head and it was in both instructive and slightly distracting. But, you know, with with time, I've sort of... I have thought a lot about the choice, particularly around language in this movie and why... I mean, firstly, obviously, the dogs are the story. So the, the idea that they're going to speak English and it's their voices that are privileged. But the, the decision to um, not have subtitles for the Japanese characters... Um, is a strange one, I think, and I'm curious as to what you both make of that. Yeah, I did read an article that sort of interviewed a couple of um, Japanese-American people and asked their opinions on the film and, like, that this film is essentially not made for a Japanese audience, it's made for an American audience and that the unsubtitled um, Japanese language is essentially not really relevant to the story and might be kind of mumbled Mm. anyway, so you wouldn't necessarily hear it in that case. I did have a problem. There was one moment where I think they're talking to either a human or a dog that's speaking Japanese. The dog, the English-speaking dogs are. And they say, oh, it's a shame that we don't Mm. understand this language. And I'm like, they're dogs that living in in Japan. Why do they not speak Japanese? Why is that not their (laughs) native language? You know, like, yeah. Why are they called... Chief and Rex (laughs) and Duke. Um, Yeah, I mean, so is it just, you know, as you say, using Japan for the way that it looks rather than any Mm. actual cultural meaning? And I don't have a huge problem with that. You know, I guess if it was used differently, I wouldn't have a huge problem with it. But the fact that, yeah, it is just a setting, you know, it could be, I don't know, on in New Jersey or something, yeah. I don't know, and it will be, it will be exactly mm. the same. I mean, I, I I prefer to kind of step away from the you know there is this knee jerk outrage box that people keep climbing yeah. up on, like oh my god, this is terrible. Mm. I I don't feel that because I just you know stories are open anything? to people. Yeah. You know, if he's American and wants to do something about Japan, I think he's free to. Because, you know, otherwise you end up saying, I'm sorry, whereas, you know, you're 45-year-old mm. American, you can only write and right. do things about 45-year-old yeah, Americans. I agree with you. Nuts, right? So pe- stories are up for grabs, but they also need to be respectful. So I don't think that his cinema in this case is disrespectful. I think it's blank. It's like Japan bento box, you know, <laughs> mm. sumo, 
we're done. You know, and, and I kept thinking, why is it in Japan? And I, the because only answer Japan is, is really organised and clean, and Wes Anderson likes to be organised and clean. Maybe that's as far as it goes. I don't know. I mean, I yeah. kind of thought it's just he thinks it's cool, like it looks pretty, which comes mm. back to my argument that he he's just ruled by what he thinks is attractive to look at and not anything to do with what anything could possibly mean. Any um, ideas, Joe? <sighs> why is it in Japan? Do you, have no, you I, I don't have an, an yeah. answer to that. No. I mean, I, I, mean, think I think you're right. And it's no problem to just, you know, think that it looks cool. But there was just that, you know, the fact, that comment about, oh, I wish we could speak their language. It's yeah. like, well, why don't you? <laughs> you know, why can't you be speaking English but, you know, just be like a, an old American production that maybe is just filmed in Germany and characters just happen to be speaking English so the yeah. audience can understand. But textually, they're really speaking German or, you know, they're really speaking Japanese. Like, yeah. that kind of thing. Why can't that be the logic in this film? There also seemed to be such hard work to try and communicate dialogue with we're in Japan but the dogs are speaking um, English and then you've got the Tracy Walker character voiced by Greta Gerwig in Megasaki and we've got to have the the nice kind of American exchange student in there to represent the voices of Megasaki <laughs> and like why do yeah. like and, and that is mm. where that's the one thing where I did start to hedge towards oh here comes the white saviour yeah. you know like and, and it's don't, I don't think that it pushes into that territory. But it is like, could you not have just said it in a magical land? Could you not have just had it in no country? Could you mm. have not had it in America? And if you really love Japanese cinema and Japanese culture, you can have a Japanese student in there or an American student who really likes Japan or there are other ways that he could have solved those problems. Which is maybe why in the world of Wes Anderson, like Fantastic Mr. Fox is, is better. Yeah. Because it is in, you know, essentially this removed fictional place. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, all every one of his films is set in some kind of fantasy version of a reality. And I agree, maybe Fantastic Mr. Fox leaves people feeling better about themselves because it's not in a world that looks anything like our own. Yeah. Well, it sounds like we're kind of somewhat mixed on this. I mean, I think it's worth kind of thinking about. I'm not sure whether it was that pleasurable to... I think it's worth looking at. Yeah. But not much to write home about. Yeah. Okay. Well, if you want to add to this discussion of Isle of Dogs or maybe completely furiously disagree with us, because I know that Wes Anderson has his fans... um, Uh, By all means, we'd love to hear from you, so head to facebook.com slash censusofcinema and leave a comment there on our episode thread. The Australian Centre for the Moving Image has been taken over by a world of topsy-turvy nonsense. Over 100 years of history is celebrated here with parts of Lewis Carroll's initial creations of Alice in Wonderland, artefacts from films and behind-the-scenes materials that showcase the process of filmmaking and also the cinema itself in our memories. You can see this world premiere exhibition at ACME on now through to October 7th, but Mark, Joe and I checked it out in its early days to see what it was like. Our international listeners can also check out the latest Senses of Cinema edition for a broad dossier looking at the history of Alice in Wonderland in films throughout the century and throughout more than the last century, yes. in fact. Um, so, you guys, I'm wondering, how did you approach this exhibition? <laughs> um, my immediate experience was... Is it a terrible thing to say? I'm one of those people that when you get to a curated sort of exhibition, I always think, oh, I'm a little bit kind of... I always feel like I want to get through it really quickly and I don't know why. I'm not somebody who takes my time. But because the way that it's set up, you're immediately kind of stopped with a whole range of images and doorways Mm. and mirrors that become really disorientating that really quickly I was kind of infected with this kind of quite infantile sense of adventure, like, ooh, I wonder what's behind this. Oh, my God, it's true. He was. I said to Joe that you turned into, like, a little boy when we were there. <laughs> and I haven't been a little boy for a long time. Um, but it was kind of like walking into a room going, like, ooh, what's in this drawer? And, you know, you pull open a drawer and something pops up or a, a video begins. Mm. I I really, really enjoyed it you know, very much. I was really infected with a quite, quite childlike sort of sense of discovery. 
Yeah, I think it's really great. You know, you mentioned all of the doors, doors that are different sizes. So, you know, proper uh, human adult size and then smaller doors um, within the within this fantasy land of Alice, but also that children can kind of engage with. And there are drawers with, you know, hidden hidden gems. There was also a door that you open and as or you could go through it, but it was just a cupboard yeah. <laughs> um, to fool you. And I really like that. But I think yeah. it's really important that that's like the first kind of three or four rooms at the beginning when you first walk in and after that it becomes a much wider open space. Yeah. So, you know, you do have this fun, interactive, like lost sense, but that that is kind of, you get over that quite quickly and can look at the rest of the stuff. I think that was quite good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think that's great. And I think that's a, a wonderful thing about the exhibition is the way that it's been shaped for um, people of all sizes, as in not you know, adults and children. Um, I'm going to return there probably with my nephew, who's yes. 11, um, and I think I'll probably have more of a childlike experience then. I think I did go through it a bit more like this is work at the moment. I need yep. to... And it was very busy when I went to... Um, but, uh, yeah, I liked getting to the, the space where it opened and it becoming a little bit more about cinematic um, interpretations of Alice and getting to see, you know, some of those on screens and see the artefacts from them. Yeah. Um, and I had a really good time with that. I also like, really like the way that it's organised, essentially according to the narrative of, yeah. of the, the book. So, you know, you start out in the hallway of doors and then you kind of move into, is it the, the Pool of Tears? And then you sort of yeah. work your way through the, the big features of the story. And, you know, certainly even if you, you go to Senses of Cinema and, and look at the journal with the, the articles that we've got there, you know, you read through a few of those and get a sense of a, a reminder, essentially, of how that story works. Or if you reaccess one of the films, it, it is a little bit like kind of walking your way through the film, mm. you know, that you get the sense of, oh, here's how different uh, adaptations of the story have dealt with the Mad Hatter's Tea Party or something like that. So that you get a, a strong sense of a strong visual sense as well as a strong sort of experiential sense things happen mm. to you as you walk through there um, so that it connects you really closely to the the trajectory of that narrative which I really loved you get a, a strong sense of that too in um, Alexandra Helen Nicholas's introduction to the dossier of how this story seems to have almost been created uh, with cinema in mind I mean obviously it wasn't but it's just so visual and you know every chapter and is ever is almost like a sequence and some of those early um, film adaptations, like they've got the... They're actually screening oh, yeah. the 1903 first silent film. It is sort of, you know, there's no use of close-up, I don't think, in that movie at all. And so it all looks like, you know, these kind of moving tableau that kind of move in from one frame to the next. And you do feel like you're flicking. I mean, I think it's only like nine minutes. So mm. it's like you're just flicking the pages of the book to kind of get through to the end of the story. Yeah, but, and so many of those films as well, they, like, pick and choose some of the incidents that kind of yeah. occur yeah. in the book. Because so, there's so many. Yeah, and so <laughs> it is just like, you know, you could kind of, you know, you can create a bit of a, a cookie world yeah. with no matter what you choose. Yeah. Yeah, and that's really great. I really like that you can kind of, that in that, I think it's the 1903 version that you can watch it in this little, like, makeshift cinema. And even though yeah. it's just a projection, there's the sound effect of a camera... Um, of, you know, camera kind of playing the the actual physical film yeah. um, as though you're sitting in a cinema in 1903. I thought that was really nice. Yeah, that was a good little room. I enjoyed being in there. <laughs> yeah. They've got some also some sort of extraordinary costumes and stuff that you can mm. um, engage with. Like you're not allowed to touch them, but you can certainly move <laughs> up really close to them. Not allowed to wear them either. Not allowed to wear them, which is, which is a great thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> If but, only we had Cary Grant's turtle costume and uh, we could all put that on, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so there's a, a lot of kind of cinema history in there, which mm. is really great. But I think the, the stuff that I loved um, was that you had – it kind of really clearly appeals to separate audiences. So we kind of nerdy mm. cinephile losers are just going to – get overexcited over the storyboards and the costumes and, you know, stills and that sort of stuff. And at the same time, and you probably had this, Joe, if you really were there when there were a lot of kids there. <laughs> yes. Like, kids just going nuts yep. and loving it to bits. Not because I don't give a toss about the storyboard from 1933, <laughs> 
but they do love to kind of, you know, you get a, a little interactive map that you get to play around with and there are places where you can put the map and it's got some sensor thing that lights up a room or gives you another image or, you know, little doors, obviously, that you can run through so that it, it was kind of this beautiful split between adults looking carefully at storyboards and stills and costumes and kids just having an absolute blast running around following the maps. And, you know, that's like what Alice in Wonderland is, the story. It's kind of, you know, if you're an adult, you can interpret it in a number of ways and you can be like, oh, this is just like being on acid, Yeah, you know, and that's really great. But for kids, it's just a wonderful imaginative kind of experience as a story of this girl, you know, kind of getting to getting to literally experience what she's dreaming for in her imagination. Yeah. And so the exhibition, you know, that it straddles those two ways of being is kind of wonderful yes, as well. Yes, I agree. My, one of my, I just want to point this out because it was really very interesting to me. One of my favourite versions of Alice is the Schwenkmeyer film yes. um, from the 80s. And there were a few dolls from <laughs> the film at this exhibition and you could kind of climb up so you know it's a stop motion animation and this creepy doll is Alice and then she's you know she meets the Mad Hatter and the um, rabbit um, and you know it's it's kind of a, a lot of images of death and skeletons yes. and everything in this film it's very very dark but it's great fun I love it but you could kind of climb up a ladder into this look at this Alice doll in this little house yeah. So and this it was big oversized though. chair. So it was like this enormous big chair. Yeah, but I love sit on. that version. You know, I mean, we were talking about stop motion before with Isle of Dogs, but I love that film for its stop motion and for the uncanniness of this inanimate object, these inanimate objects being animated in a film scenario. Yeah, I find it quite scary. Yeah. I find the, the white rabbit in that film very rat-like. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you can see it there. And I loved that, you know, in the film, these inanimate objects become animate. But when we were looking at them in the exhibition, mm. they're inanimate again. Yeah. And that was so, mm. it was like doubly uncanny. It was so spooky to like look at her kind of cold, dead eyes Were you and waiting? her sharp, fang-like yeah. teeth. <laughs> anyway, and it was so spooky. Were but you I waiting really for them that. to start moving? Kind of. I was a bit scared something might happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, there was a little, you know, in the windows of that yeah. that doll's house, they were, they were playing a clip of the film as though they were just yeah. about to, you know, break out from their house. Yeah. <laughs> and that, uh, I mean, uh, once you kind of get into that, that Svankmeyer stuff, like you do get a little bit of, the balance of the kind of sweet little girl with the blue yeah. dress and all that sort of stuff. Suddenly you get, oh, actually, this is also a film, a story about kind of horror and terror and transformation and weirdness. And, you know, so there is a bit of a balance of that kind of perfect Disney image of, of Alice because when you walk into that Spank room, oof. Definitely. Yeah. yeah, that was really clear in there as well, I yeah. think. Um, they're also screening the um, short film by the Key Brothers. Yes. Um, what's that called? Alice in Not-So-Wonderland, yes. which I'd never seen before, yes. but I've watched it subsequently now, maybe five times, because yeah. it's only three minutes. And that is, you know, that picks up again on those dark undertones. Yeah. You know, that's a wonderful little movie um, about the terror outside of the house, yeah. kind of threatening mm. in on your idol as a child and what's coming and her not knowing what it is or how to keep it at bay. And yeah, yeah. I will say that, that once you walk out of that Spank my room and you move into, and I know certainly Eloise and I sat in the room together. Did you do the Mad Hatter's tea party, Joe? I did, but I had to queue for 10 minutes to get in there and it was a full house. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, we got and dragged in there like, please. Yeah, really? um, well, yeah we yeah, were no. there at the end of the day. A lot of the, the kids had gone by that stage. Yeah, I thought I think that they was put it on especially for us. They it did. was great fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's it, awesome. Yeah, mm. it's kind of you know the um, this. They said, "Do not touch the crockery," which I had already which done. Which was the first thing we did. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, but you know, doesn't surprise me. Yeah, it was great. You know that the different. The, I mean, the walls and also the table. Just like it took you through this transformative setting. And yeah, made just a, it's essentially a light show hmm. with with white um, crockery on the table and white walls, and then it's just a light show where it just makes it look like everything is kind of gone crazy. Um, the crockery starts to spin or get kind of um, patterns and things on it. It's just this really quite extraordinary immersive light show, which I, I really loved. Mm. That was really good fun. 
Yeah, yeah, I loved it. And um, did you, we couldn't, they were shutting, but there's this final room where you can make your own cut out of a card. I didn't go in there because, the day, yeah, it was very, very busy. Yeah. Um, so I, I said, you know, I had it explained to me by one of the ushers because um, I said that I'd be reviewing the exhibition. So they told me what was going on in there. But, yep. yeah, it was full of children and their grandparents. But when I take my nephew, we'll do it. I mean, yeah. it looked really quite fun once you realised that you could create your own playing card yes. and then it would scan your face and you basically join the croquet um, party. Yeah. yeah, and so like this, you know, like the tea party mm. room, you become a part of, part of this it. this yeah. imagined story. Mm. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, that is basically what the Alice in Wonderland story, originally written by Lewis Carroll, is about. Yes. It's about, you know, a regular person kind of becoming part of this magical fantasy and that is kind of in, put into play in the exhibition, which is, which is really great. So it is so interactive and so good for kids. But you know, as we said, there's all of these, um, you know, illustrated scripts and storyboards. It's yes. also really fascinating from a, a film history point of view, and yeah. that's great too. And yeah. also worth mentioning that Senses had a, a collaboration with with Acme, and that there is a, this beautiful book that has been created, um, featuring a lot of the writing from our dossier. That's um, available online, obviously, at censusofcinema.com. But you can also go in and get this really beautiful um, kind of coffee table book mm. featuring a whole stack of images from a range of the films as well as the writing um, from our incredibly talented writers. So, you know, it, it's been a really productive collaboration between us and Acme and it's worked beautifully, I think. Yeah, so you can get to that exhibition um, through till October 7th. Um, it's worth travelling to Melbourne for, you know, if you're around or planning a trip. Um, but hopefully, you know, it's the start of something something more, some more engagement with Alice in Wonderland as a history. So Absolutely. And bring kids. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Just not too many of them. <laughs> <laughs> Here at Senses of Cinema, we do our best to bring you the most interesting, provocative writing on cinema from across the globe highlighting films from the past and the present to bring exciting new talent to your attention and to explore fresh perspectives on films from the past. But it's true that bringing this journal to you each quarter is an expensive proposition, so we've now established a Patreon account to help with meeting the costs of keeping Senses of Cinema running. We have a whole range of goodies for patrons that subscribe to our account. We're offering newsletters, including fresh takes on cinema from our editors and curated dossiers from our back catalogue. And if you're to subscribe at the higher level, you get all of the extras and an ad-free version of this very podcast so you don't have to be interrupted by me every single month. Plus, you'll get an additional bonus segment of the podcast each month out of our gratitude to your commitment to Senses of Cinema. That means that you'll contribute to our ultimate goal at Senses, and that's to be in a position to pay our fantastic writers for all the hard work they all do to keep the journal as terrific as it is. To become a patron of Senses of Cinema, visit censusofcinema.com, click on our Patreon link and enjoy the benefits of supporting those who bring the journal to you throughout your film year. Sally Potter started out her career focused on theatre and dance and then moved into cinema by the early 1980s. It was her breakout success with the adaptation of Virginia Woolf's novel Orlando that really placed her, as well as actor Tilda Swinton, on the map. Her subsequent films have worked through a range of theatrical forms and genres, including a dance film with 2009's The Tango Lesson, the formal theatricality of 2004's Yes, the teen film with Ginger and Rosa in 2012, and now, most recently, the drawing room comedy with The Party, which stars such actors as Kristen Scott Thomas, Patricia Clarkson, Timothy Spall and Cherry Jones. So, Eloise, perhaps if we start with The Party, despite the fact that it only runs about 65 minutes... How did you find Sally Potter's latest film? I um, really enjoy talking about The Party and thinking about The Party, maybe more than I actually enjoyed watching it. I feel like this is a film that is going to get better and more enjoyable every time someone sees every time you watch it. Okay. So I feel like I, I want to see it again so I can get more out of it. I mean, it is basically just a chamber piece, almost like a play, a filmed play, yeah. but it's it's not. I mean, I kind of have compared it a little bit to... Um, Edward Albee's Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf it is, yeah. um, because it's about all of these unpleasant people doing and saying unpleasant things. But 
within a single setting, but it, the camera does move and kind of takes us to a number of places and the, the framing is really quite imaginative, I think. Yeah. Um, so it does make you feel as though you're watching a film and you're not just stuck in a play theatrical setting. Yeah. Um, so I really love it and it's very mm. quotable. I mean, so much of the dialogue is just kind of delicious. Um, I really I really enjoyed the party okay. um, a, as a concept, I think. Um, and I love, you know, Kristen Scott Thomas and Patricia Clarkson, Bruno Garns, who are the the main kind of yeah. people, you know, they all are so great. And you can kind of see, Joe was saying earlier, like it, it doesn't take itself too seriously. No, and I think that you can see that they're just having a great time kind of playing these roles and being really mean to each other. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of fun. I mean, I, you know, I find the film really insubstantial um, and not just because it's short, but, you know, it's kind of fun for the time that it that it lasts. It is literally just that film where everybody gets in a room and yells at each other. Mm. So as long as you're kind of aware of what you're getting, that it's going to be a fairly short film that's got some fairly decent lines in it, um, I think the actors sell the script. Mm. I don't think the script is that amazing. I think it's fine. But I think the actors sell it like crazy. Patricia Clarkson is really kind of acerbic and cutting. Um, that's kind of the only thing she gets to do. And in fact, you know, if I've got, and I do have problems with it, um, everybody's kind of one note. You're just there to kind of do your one thing uh, and then shut up. Um, but, you know, I don't know that I'm in a hurry to go back to see it. I didn't dislike it. I just sort of got to the end and thought it, it, it's structured almost like a long joke. It's like a, a long form joke that, you know, sort of goes on and on and on. You get to the punchline, you think, oh, that punchline was pretty good, and I'm done. I agree with you about the structure, but not about the substance of the characters. I mean, they are kind of very specific, but I don't think they're one note. Like, I think that there are brief but kind of um, quite sensitive suggestions at greater meaning, not just with the characters, but with what they're talking about. I mean, they make kind of reference to things like the health system, to the responsibility of second-generation citizens, immigrants, you know, to um, historical kind of responsibility um, and all of this. So I think that there is, you know, more to it than, than it would appear. Yeah, I think under the surface of it, there's um, the fact that the film was um, made during the Brexit referendum. I think it was sort of actually... Or written before it. Written before it. Mm. But, um, you know, Sally Potter is quite a political, um, politically-minded filmmaker, though she um, refuses to have her work sort of framed that way explicitly. Like, she doesn't want it to be called feminist, for example. Um, I mean, I think I agree with everything both of you have said. Um, I don't... I mean, I think it's a really great way to spend 65 to 71 minutes if you stay for the credits. Um, but I do... I'll oh, did I leave early? Yeah, you must yeah, have. No. Um, I mean, I saw it for the first time at MIFF last year and the audience had an amazing time with it. It was the first... Mm. I mean, it, you know, it, during a festival where you're often, you know, pushed to your emotional limits, it was the first time I heard really anybody laughing. That's amazing. Quite loudly. Yeah, everybody was laughing. Um, so, I mean, it is witty, it's dry, it's acerbic. The performances are really excellent. Um, yeah. And, but, yeah, maybe it's not, it's not something that resonates, you know, like another film might. Um, you know, there is probably a lack of some sort of substance there. But, I mean, I think the use of space is really excellent. Um, but I also think another thing that's really interesting about the performances is how they're all so tonally different. Mm. Um, often in something that's, you know, may fall into theatricality. Everybody's kind of playing it at the same level. And here everyone is doing something quite different and, and like you've both said, doing it all really very well. You know, they're all at the top of their game. Yeah, uh, that's so true. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the performances and stuff are, are great. I think it kind of looks pretty decent. I mean, I, I, I'd probably push back on, oh, there's depth to it because it, for me it was literally like, oh, the health system's bad. Moving on, you know, and, and, and that sort of was like the, a laundry list of complaints. Yeah, that, oh, was, yeah. that was the level of investigation, and it was kind of you know having come off already a discussion about Isle of Dogs and Wes Anderson and his desire to just grab something and say, "Here's a thing." Um, I think you know, I was trying to decide too, you know, if there's a character in that in it that could be a mouthpiece for the director, for the writer director, mm. and wondering whether Potter sits somewhere maybe between the Clarkson character and the the Scott Thomas character. Because I think there's also quite a strong sense that there's the film is anti-dogma on any level. Like, I mean, it's clearly that she belongs to um, 
Kristen Scott Thomas's character belongs to a left-wing party, but you know that party's never named. And mm. then and then you have other characters who are kind of challenging that worldview. I wonder. I mean, I haven't really made my mind in, up on in it. like a lack yeah. of specificity, or yeah, the lack or, of specificity, or maybe just like you know, all, speaks to Sally Potter herself. Somehow. Yeah, or maybe just all of these perspectives. She just she's saying that they're all equally problematic, mm. like the New Age one, the the kind of complete disillusionment that Clarkson's character represents. Yeah, I mean, how do we let's maybe move on to some of her other work? Yes. How do we see this film in relation to? Her other films, you know, is she, does she lack some kind of specificity in this case? Is she ever blaming any one particular movement or, or perspective in other films? Or is it always more of an explore, just an exploration of kind of what's occurring? I mean, I watched The Gold Diggers last night and I feel like that that's kind of quite obviously um, some kind of, um, pushback against, like, the patriarchy and assigned gender roles and just, you know, not only um, blaming kind of men and these patriarchal structures for the way that they've dictated society, but also, um, I guess, people who just go along with that um, and that it's something to do with expectations and communication, the, the failures of these modes of being um, that, that don't really let these these things work in society? Yeah. I mean, look, I, I, it has to be said, I'm, you know, having watched now a few of her films, not a fan. Mm. Um, in that, I, I mean, it's it's awesome hearing you guys try and make sense of intellectually what she's doing because I find her not very intelligent. I don't find <laughs> the films intelligent. Yeah. I, I find them... She's trying to work through some formal things, Um you know, she wants to do some interesting things with stories or with, you know, structure. But I think that when she comes to ideas, I don't think that she's strong enough mm. or hasn't worked through complex ideas enough that she almost reduces them to a basic representation. That's as far as it goes. I, I kept getting frustrated by, you know, these films that I was watching. I mean, and, and I'm not classing them all together. I mean, Orlando, I think, is actually pretty good. Um but, you know, she's also relying on Virginia Woolf <laughs> for, in that case. Um, and, I, you know, as I've already said, I don't mind the party. I think it's okay. The other two that I did watch, Ginger and Rosa and Yes, um, you know, I kind of was indifferent to or despised to, to varying degrees. Um, but, but there's nothing, there's no, I didn't find any intellectual heft to anything. It's almost like she says something and says, I am now representing this idea. And then it sits there. There's no working through it. There's no discussion about it. It's almost like I have mentioned it and that's enough. And I found that really infuriating. Yeah, I mean, she is, you know, kind of doing those things. Um, I don't know really how to respond to that. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you're wrong, Mark, you terrible human being. Well, I mean, she doesn't always... It's not always, like, really, really obvious what she's doing. And maybe she does, in some ways, step back from from really realising what her experimentation with the form is is getting at. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think Ginger and Rosa is very good. I remember seeing it at a festival a couple of years ago and responding quite strongly to it. Um, but it is kind of one of her more mainstream um, yeah. films, I suppose, narratively. Yeah, I think it's quite mainstream. And, mm. uh, you know, along with Orlando, having that level of um, more mass appeal. I mean... Uh, I like... The, my favourite film of hers is actually The Tango Lesson and... I just think that's, um, again, it's playing with the idea of what cinema can be, but it's very strongly rooted in her own history. You know, she plays a version of herself in that film who's sort of uh, experiencing writer's block while she's trying to write the screenplay for the film, I think, that ended up becoming Rage, which she then didn't um, make until 2009. So The Tango Lesson was made in 1997, and it's basically about her having this extended tango lesson with an Argentinian tango master. Um, I think his name is Pablo Veron. And it's got amazing dance sequences. It's shot in black and white. And if, But if I had to say, what is this movie actually about? I'm not sure that I could articulate it right now. For me, it's just... Um, it's like Sally Potter's kind of uh, aesthetic and her experimental history and her avant-garde leanings all becoming... turning themselves into a film... And see, I, but, yeah, I, go I, ahead. I kind of 
those avant-garde leanings, mm. I'm not convinced that she leans the right way. Okay. What do you mean Be- by that? Well, What's the right way? C- can we talk about yes? <laughs> sure. Yeah. What did you not okay, like yeah, about that? Well, I mean, okay, let, I mean, I will make the statement. I think it's the worst film I've seen this century. <laughs> it is laughable nonsense. Um, I just thought it was utterly terrible in that she's trying to, you know, she tells this story about, you know, this you know, collapse of a marriage. He, he picks up with some dude. They're going to be in love, blah, blah. There's a dying aunt. Um, ends up in Cuba. <laughs> very simple <laughs> you know, version yeah. of events. And, and <laughs> she's trying to, like, I'm totally going to play with language and we're going to do it like poetry. And she uses... And, you know, I've, I've read things where people are like, oh, Sally Potter's trying to do Shakespeare. She's not trying to do Shakespeare. She does it in rhyming couplets. Shakespeare was not about the rhyming couplet. It was about free verse. And every now and again, yeah, there might be a rhyme in there, but mostly it was free verse. This is literally like she thinks that she's doing something out there in avant-garde. She's doing friggin' Dr. Zeus. It's literally... What's wrong with Dr. Zeus? Dr. Zeus is great. But if we can think about Yes as a film in which a marriage collapses, a woman sort of commits adultery, falls in love with this guy, then there's bigotry and racism, and Dr. Zeus Zeus wrote it. So it's literally like, you know, I do not like green eggs and ham. I do not like it, Sam, I am. Start fitting that rhyming meter into racism. (laughs) I kept watching it. Like, I almost... My eyes were rolling in back in my head so much, I basically gave myself a seizure. It was it, it was laughable. Whole slabs of it are like, racism's bad, and I said the racism word. So isn't that terrible? And then her ridiculous... Like, I'm sorry that her aunt died and delivers a really lengthy monologue in rhyming couplets, because that's what you do when you're about to pop your clogs. She says at the end, go to Cuba. And I can't remember what word rhymes with Cuba, but okay. So she goes to Cuba, and then it's all of these kind of ridiculous Cuban stereotypes <laughs> where it's like racism's bad, but here's some racism. Like, oh my God. It's like Shirley Valentine, if Shirley Valentine was like obsessed with rhyming. It's just, I was horrified by that film. And that's where I've sort of got this, this sense that she thinks she's making these great avant-garde decisions and I think sometimes they have worked and sometimes they are completely overwhelmingly no a total failure I haven't seen yes but I know that she I wish you had I wish I had too (laughs) but I know that she is full of contradictions and that she doesn't nothing I mean that her films don't always work for me And but I'm quite curious to see from what I've read about this film. I'm quite curious to see what it does that may in fact work or that I may in fact respond to positively. Um, I mean, I think that it's you know hearing about it. I feel like it's great and that it can have such str- people can have such strong opinions yeah, yeah. about it. That is a good thing, right? Joe. Oh, I don't even know what to say now. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's a post nine eleven movie. She wrote it in that um, context. Yeah. And sure, it's probably it's probably created characters, I mean, the, what you didn't say is the characters are kind of archetypes in some respects. You know, the woman played by Joan Allen is referred to only as she, and the yeah. the, the man is uh, actually a Lebanese Muslim exile. But he can only be called he. Yeah, well, they're both she and he. Oh. And, I read what you, know, you said about it, Joe. Yeah, you said that um, <laughs> well, <laughs> calling them she and he um, is a designation that gives them both university and fragility, that you wrote that in your SBS online I article, do, and yeah. I like that. Yeah, well, I think... Perspective of, thanks. of yeah, <laughs> I, I, I shall remain silent. Um, I think, I mean, I think some of the poetry, I mean, I don't even want to call it poetry. It's, you know, text that's written. I. Well, no, but I wouldn't call it Dr. Zeus-ish. I mean, it's it's using iambic pentameter to try to have a conversation. And I think that what these two characters connect with initially is you know, there's this sentence where um, she says conversation was an aphrodisiac once. Mm. And I think she's trying to return to this sense that, you know, how language can connect us in, you know, in various ways. But I think also by the end of the film, she kind of does reveal the futility of language Mm. to bring people together, that it is difficult to talk across cultural, racial, social barriers. Mm. And 
Well, it is if you it's easier to kind of everything. Well, maybe hunting around for like you know this is racism. What am I going to rhyme with racism? It's a schism. Like oh my god. I, I mean, really... you know, that, it's interesting to hear that that perspective. I mean, iambic pentameter, like, like, awesome, well done, good for you. It's still ridiculous rhyming couplets. I really like what you said, Joe, in your little <laughs> thing um, about. You said through their story, Potter explores the powerful transformations that occur when we say yes. Yes. And I don't know. I mean, I haven't seen it, so I can't say. But when I read that line, it made me think of Phantom Thread and the way that Alma says yes. Absolutely. And how every time she says yes, you kind of think that maybe she's, it seems as though she's giving in to Reynolds Woodcock. But in fact, she's gaining a little more power and freedom Mm. through saying yes in different ways. And that she's using language to manipulate maybe those around her because she knows about its power. And I don't know, I just wondered whether that might be present in in the terminology used in yes and in the fact that it's called yes as well. Um, I think it's, um, it's going back again to the, perhaps the political context in which the film was written, which is, you know, to sort of be living in a world where we feel like everything is just kind of collapsing around us and it's easier to build walls and you know, isolate ourselves from other people and not want to say, you know, just to kind of say, no, I can't deal with things. And, you know, she's reducing this to a kind of highly sexual relationship between two people, um, which I don't mean reduce as if that's not important, but like, you know, the focus isn't really on political, in a a political landscape, it's on a personal, sensual landscape. And Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think she sees just this kind of overwhelming sense of hope when you actually do open yourself up to mm. the possibility of what other people can bring to you by yeah. saying yes to the relationship, yes to their perspective and so on. So Sally Potter is um, it's not always an easy director to watch <laughs> and she may or may not or like. be your cup of tea. <laughs> no, um, not. But please let us know what you think. Head over to our Facebook page and, and if you think that I've been so unkind to yes, or if you think Joe is a lunatic for thinking that it's skilled, um, by all means, come over to the Facebook page uh, at facebook.com slash senses of cinema and feel free to like abuse us for, for our opinions. Please don't abuse us. Yeah, no. Don't abuse us. Be nice. Each month, Mark and I and our third chair will share with you a highlight from the current month, something, be it a film, television or otherwise screen-related material that resonated powerfully with us and we hope you can find meaningful. Now it's time for something that lit up our screen worlds this April. Mark? I saw something amazing this month. Um, So I, I really, really loved this. Over Easter, I got on a plane and went to... Uh, New Zealand. Um, And I mean, for starters, it's not screen based necessarily, but you should go to New Zealand. New Zealand's a really cool country, um, really beautiful, great people, had an amazing time. But uh, in Auckland, uh, quite happily, when I arrived there at the Auckland Art Gallery was a screening of the collaboration between uh, Julian Roosevelt and uh, Kate Blanchett and their kind of art installation manifesto. Now, I know that this was actually kind of, and I'm sort of curious whether how that would have worked in a more traditional setting, but I know that it was sort of cut together and turned into a film, and I think it played at uh, the Melbourne International Film Festival last year, Um, but it was designed to be in a gallery, and that was the gallery space that I, I saw it in. It was one of those really incredible, wonderful experiences um, where, you know, 13 different screens all with Kate Blanchett's head on it as she plays a whole range of different characters. Um, but the, the experience of seeing it in the gallery was so um, <clears throat> extraordinary in terms of the way that everything was timed. Um, there would be... I would find myself, for example, sitting in front of one screen watching her perform one particular manifesto while the, uh, the audio, because, of course, all the audio bleeds together in a gallery space, the audio from the screen next to me would actually, ultimately, I would discover, would be commentating on the images that I was seeing on the screen that I was watching. So there was this great synchronicity between your visual experience and your oral experience. And, of course, there were various points in 
the gallery experience where there would be complete silence in that room and also a period of time when there would be nothing but kind of shouting and screaming and yelling and singing all at the same time. It was a really extraordinary experience. I spent the entire time with this huge, big, dumb smile on my face. Um, had an absolute ball. So I guess my big recommendation is um, for people in Australia, it's not that expensive to get to New Zealand, get on a plane and get over there. And if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, I think that what you need to do is your next holiday, you get on a plane, you fly down to Australia, you go and see Alice in Wonderland at Acme, and then hop on a plane that's only about three hours, hop over to, to the North Island of New Zealand and check out Manifesto with Kate Blanchett. Joe, Yeah. Um, so this month I've been looking back to something that I discovered back in 2000 when it first screened on SBS, um, the television show Queer as Folk. Um, I had to write a couple of pieces for SBS who are screening season one at the moment. Um, and so I watched season one again. I basically decided I had to watch the entire thing all over. Um, having a great time with that. I mean, it's basically a soap opera about um, a group of um, gay men living in Pittsburgh. Um, and But it's a show that tackled social issues, was incredibly sexually provocative and broke down a lot of boundaries um, and, you know, in terms of gay representation on screen. Um, so I'm having a good time with that. But I'm also excited about some things that are coming that I've had little tastes of this month. So um, the release of the trailer for the new Paul Schrader film, First Reformed, starring Ethan Hawke, um, and also the release of the trailer for Lauro, which is the new film from Paolo Sorrentino, which is about um, the president whose name I've just forgotten, the Italian. Um, Berlusconi? Berlusconi, thank you, just went out of my head. And the good news also that You Were Never Here, uh, the new film from Lee, Lynn Ramsey, has finally secured an Australian distributor. And also the site of some film stills from Claire Denis' new movie, um, High Life, starring Robert Pattinson. So I'm just kind of excited about things that are coming, um, which we hopefully will see sometime in 2018. Yeah. That's that really, good. really awesome. Mm. Um, cool. Well, I just want to second Joe's recommendation of Queer as Folk because she um, and I were exchanging many, many texts <laughs> about it um, when she kind of tweeted her article. I read it and was reminded. I loved Queer as Folk. I adored it. It was such a big part of my my teenage years. Um, it, they were some of the first... Um, DVD box sets that I bought kind of overseas. I ordered them, I think, in the early 2000s from Canada or America, and that was a huge deal to order things overseas um, in that sense. Uh, so I rewatched season. I, no, I have DVDs, but they're in storage somewhere. I don't know where. So I've rewatched season one on on SBS, and now I'm hanging out for them to mm. put on season two. I just was at that time where I it, I had so much work to do, but I was like, oh, I'm just going to watch four episodes of Queer as Folk tonight instead. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I was reminded that I love yeah. the soundtrack. And anyway, so many beautiful men. Yes, very. I mean, um, lots of visual pleasures. Yeah, yeah, great choreographed dance scenes <laughs> yeah. and everything. Um, but I guess on that, I want to... I was returned, and I haven't watched it recently, but I was returned in memory to Lynn Ramsey's Morven Keller mm. um, yes. with mm. all of the discussion about her new film coming out, which has is going to be released at some point in Australia. I don't know when. But um, people were kind of... have been tweeting about um, Lynn Ramsey and... Um, some retrospectives that are occurring of her work, perhaps over overseas. And the Melbourne Cinematheque screened a few of her films two years ago, um, Morven Keller and Ratcatcher. Yep. Um, and Morven Keller, people were kind of talking about it online, you know, is it is it good or was it just this very early indie film that doesn't quite work? And I love that film. Yes. Um, we screened it mm. and it's such an important film to kind of see in a cinema because the soundtrack is so important. Yeah. And I really love this, you know, just kind of relentless kind of following around of the Samantha Morton character and that it's a really kind of a struggle to stay with her, but it's a really beautiful kind of interrogation of character and space um, and grief um, and the use of music. And I love Morven Keller. So even though, I mean, I feel like this is constantly what's happening in the world of film, I don't know, cinephilia or criticism or film Twitter or whatever you want to call it, is like <laughs> this constant rediscovery of people who are already 
like yeah. have well earned their stripes yeah. <laughs> um, is is something that's happening with Lynn Ramsey right now. But you know, Morven Callow is just such a great film. And if this is a film that is making people go back and and you know essentially rediscover her work, then, yes. then that's great. Um, so I'm all for that. I just guess makes me feel very old the way people rediscover things that I've seen. <laughs> you know, when I that I saw when they came out. You know, yeah, yeah. But yeah. of course, their Twitter is populated by a lot of 25 year olds. So. Yeah. Mm. yeah, that's true. Well, well, I'm happy to co-sign your, your Morven Callow yeah. recommendation. I love that film. It's terrific. Great. Thanks for joining us this month on the Senses of Cinema podcast. Thanks to Eloise Ross. And thanks to our fantastic third chair this month, Joe DiMattia. Thanks for coming back, Joe. Thank you, Mark. And thanks also to our technical producer, the brilliant Troy Morey, who makes us sound incredible and amazing and like actual humans. Um, thanks also to Swinburne University for the use of their recording studio here in beautiful Hawthorne, Melbourne. I'm Mark Freeman, and thanks for listening to the Senses of Cinema podcast. We'll speak with you again next month. <laughs>